I cannot offend you. You can only allow yourself to be offended. I agree, okay? I, <laughs> but it's yeah, hard. <laughs> I, I can, I, yeah, I know, I know. I've been there, man. Trust me, I've been there. But, uh, you know, if people say a lot of offensive things, and whether I want to be offended by it or not is up to me. You know, I, I, I can't be offended by somebody else's ignorance. And that, that's their issue, not mine. Uh, but yes, they are offensive. Okay, so my story is uh, I'm a 64-year-old, obviously, uh, a black guy. But uh, I've done a lot of traveling around the world and seen a lot of different races, a lot, well, you know, there's only one race, the human race, but a lot of different skin colors, I'll say, uh, religions, cultures, ideologies, belief systems, et cetera. And all of that has, has shaped me. And the, the most racism that I have experienced, and I've been to 61 countries and all 50 states on six continents, and is right here in my own country. Does social media censorship cause extremism? According to some of the leaders of alternative social networks, yes, it does. It's a very interesting time right now, to put it lightly. Elon wants to buy Twitter to protect free speech. Many are up in arms about that. And there's a huge debate about what social networks should allow or not allow and what role they should play in what we say, what we amplify, and how we do public discourse. To chat about that, we have Bill Ottman, who's a CEO of Minds.com, and a special guest, Daryl Davis, a blues musician and black man who has convinced more than 200 KKK members to change their views on racism. Welcome to Tech First, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. We seem to increasingly live in different worlds with different ideas, different facts, different perceptions of everything. Why is that? Maybe, Daryl, we'll start with you. Well, you know, things are always changing, always evolving. That's how the world operates. Just like it spins around, goes around the sun. You know, things are always changing, always revolving. And uh, human beings are creatures of habit, not creatures of change. So it tends to, to mess with their psyche. And they get involved in wanting to keep things the same, uh, not wanting anything radical to change, et cetera. And when you mess with that, uh, they tend to act out. And that's what we're seeing. Bill, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I echo that. I, th I think it's very easy for people to get stuck in their comfort zones. And, you know, change can be painful. But I think that what we learn is that a little bit of pain is actually healthy, you know, or, or discomfort. I mean, you even, discomfort. I think discomfort more so than pain. It's, it's um, you know, whether you're talking about dialogue or you're even talking about like physical health. I mean, you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta work out if you want to, you know, get in shape, you gotta. So I think the pattern sort of transcends in a couple areas. Bill, let's turn to you. You wrote a paper about social networks, about free speech, and you are essentially saying with some co-authors that when you censor ideas in social media platforms, let's say Facebook, let's say Twitter, you actually cause extremism. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, that's what the data shows. Uh, and, you know, to, to be fair, it's not that that's a hundred percent true all of the time. You know, there are cases I think where, you know, 
certain unlawful ideas do need to get censored. And that's just how it is. I mean, that's, that's the world we live in. So, but what, you know, what, what do you expect if, if you throw someone off a website, where do they go? Well, you just have to follow them and you see that they go to other smaller forums with less diversity of ideas and, you know, their ideas get reinforced and they compound. And now on minds, we do have pretty strong diversity of thought. And so we are an alternative forum where people do go sometimes when they get banned, but I wouldn't say their views are necessarily amplified when they come because we, we do have diversity of opinion, though that can happen. The point being that sort of both options are on the table. There are alternative forums they can go where their ideas will become amplified because they don't have exposure to alternative ideas, or they could go somewhere like mine's where there is sort of diversity of thought and they can get exposure to contrary ideas to what they think, which can fuel the, the evolution of, of their ideas. So I want to hear Daryl's story in a moment, but just a quick follow-up question for you, Bill. You said that's what the data shows. What data did you dig up, look up, uh, survey, uh, study? Many. I mean, on probably over 100 different studies. Um, so, you know, really we're looking at isolation and the correlation between isolation and radicalization. You know, Dr. Nafis Hamid put out a very fascinating study that, that we included, really talking about the difference between online and offline radicalization. And he found that actually only 20% of online radicals, people who have sort of adopted some sort of extreme ideology online, actually escalate into violent extremism, as opposed to, you know, the majority of radicalization, which escalates into actual violent extremism is actually happening offline. So I think that the, the fascinating part of this data is that, you know, yes, we don't like to see really ugly ideas online. However, most of the time, those people and ideas are not escalating into violent extremism. So you can actually invert the conversation and say, oh, oh, it's actually good that that person is expressing themselves online as opposed to going underground and going offline where things can actually have a higher likelihood of escalating into violence. So, you know, it's, it's really about inverting the lens with which we're seeing things that we disagree with in, in kind of questioning ourselves, like, how am I reacting to seeing something that, you know, hurts me or offends me? And is there something more productive I can do? Is there some sort of positive intervention or engagement that I can, can take part in? This is a fascinating conversation, just uh, the way you framed that, because, you know, I probably have a lot of views that you might disagree with, right? Whether that be around COVID, whether that might be around other things, who knows? I don't even know what you think, but I just think of my interactions with friends, sometimes relatives on Facebook, on Twitter, and the fact that somebody thinks X is true or Y is caused by 
I'll say Z for our Americans, but it's Z for Canadians. You know, that's just so offensive. It's how could somebody think that? It offends my entire worldview. It, you know, it's how there's no factual foundation for that. And how we react there is quite interesting. And how you frame that, I'll have to do some thinking about that. We'll get deeper into that. But Daryl, I want to bring you in here. And I wish that you would tell your story briefly because it is a fascinating story of a man that has converted kkk racists to not hate black people how did that happen sure well first let me uh, just address a couple of things that you said and that uh, bill said i don't think kicking uh people off of uh twitter or facebook whatever causes extremism i think what it does is it causes them to perhaps follow a path that may lead to extremism the extremism already exists and they're on different platforms and different areas and, you know, when you get kicked off of something, you go somewhere else. And it's quite possible that you might go in that direction to, to somewhere where it already exists and it, and it embraces you and welcomes you and amplifies you. So in that regard, and you were saying how, you know, you hear all these things and, and you're offended. Uh, I'm, I'm of the mindset that, you know, I cannot offend you. You can only allow yourself to be offended. I agree, okay. I, <laughs> but it's yeah, hard. <laughs> I, I can, I, yeah, I know, I know. I've been there, man. Trust me, I've been there. But, uh, you know, yeah, people say a lot of offensive things, and whether I want to be offended by it or not is up to me. You know, I, I, I can't be offended by somebody else's ignorance. And that, that's their issue, not mine. Uh, but yes, they are offensive. Okay, so my story is, uh, I'm a 64-year-old, obviously, uh, a black guy, but uh, I've done a lot of traveling around the world and seen a lot of different races, a lot, well, you know, there's only one race, human race, but a lot of different skin colors, I'll say, uh, religions, cultures, ideologies, belief systems, et cetera. And all of that has, you know, has shaped me. And the, the, the most racism that I have experienced, and I've been to 61 countries and all 50 states on six continents, and is right here in my own country. Yeah. And so it bothers me. And as a child, I was... Uh, I had rocks and bottles and, and soda pop cans thrown at me at the age of 10 while marching in a Cub Scout parade in which I was the only black scout in an otherwise all white parade. Uh, I didn't understand it. It had never happened before. I've been around the world. Nobody had ever treated me like that before. I had no idea what was going on. I was so naive. I thought the very few people, there were lots of white people there, but the very few white people who were doing this, I thought perhaps they didn't like the scouts until I realized I was the only scout getting hit. That's how naive I was. It's like uh, a former neo-Nazi, who's, who's one of my best friends uh, today, uh, he, he had met somebody from the Cameroons uh, recently uh, who had come here to this country. And he was talking with him, and the guy from the Cameroons said, I didn't realize I was black till I got here. <laughs> you know, because that racism did not exist there. People are just people, you know. But here, you know, you are defined by what you look like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was the same thing with me. I, I was that naive. And uh, I formed a question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 54 years from the age of 10, uh, I've been looking for the answer to that question. So I've sought out uh, white supremacists, white nationalists, white separatists, whatever you want to call them, you know, arose by any other name still arose, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, sit them down and just try to figure out where are they coming from? Why do they believe this way? And that's why I said I have heard everything. 
and it's up to me whether I want to be offended by their offense or not. So uh, that's, you know, that's how I came to do that. Many people have sat down and talked with me. Some refuse to do so. Some want to fight me. And we've unfortunately had to engage in violence. But fortunately, those have been few and far between. Uh, so I've learned a lot. But what I've learned mostly is this, that we all, no matter how far I go from this country, whether it's next door to Canada or to Mexico or to the other side of the globe, no matter how different the people may be who I encounter, they may not look like me, speak my language or worship as I do. We all are human beings. That's what I figured out. And as human beings, we all want these same five principles, five core values in our lives. We all want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we all want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for theirs. And if we can learn to apply those five core values when we find ourselves in an adversarial uh, situation or in a culture or society in which we're unfamiliar, it doesn't have to be about race. It can be about any other hot topic, abortion, nuclear weapons, global warming, the war between Russia and Ukraine, the last presidential election, whatever it is, you're on one side, I'm on the other side. If we can apply those five core values when we're having a conversation with an adversary, our navigation will be much more positive and much more smooth. And that's how I have become the impetus for people in the KKK and other white supremacists to rethink that ideology and ultimately leave that, leave that ideology behind, even renounce it. And some of them even come out with me and speak out against it and try to de-radicalize people who are in their former group and try to prevent others from joining. I don't like to say that I converted anybody. Yes, over 200 have left. I've been the impetus for them to convert themselves. Fascinating and, and huge respect. Can you say those five items one more time? Absolutely. Everyone wants to be loved. We all want to be respected. We all want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we all basically want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for theirs. And when we had that conversation, we find that out. A missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Okay, you know, we start at opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, if you spend five minutes with your, with your worst enemy, you will find something in common. And that chasm, that gap begins to narrow. Spend another five minutes, you find more in common, and it closes in more. When you get here, you are in a relationship with that person. You know, you may not be best friends, but you're having a relationship with your enemy. You spend even more time, it gets even closer, and now you're in a friendship. You found so many things in common that the trivial things you have in contrast, such as skin color, or whether you go to a mosque, a church, a temple, or a synagogue, begin to matter less and less. So, you know, I always say when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. It's when the conversation ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. There's a lot to take in there. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get into a number of those things as we continue the conversation. Just before I go back to Bill here, uh, there's a perception that we are seeing more racism lately. I should speak clearly. There's a perception that there is more racism lately, whether it's Asians and COVID, whether it's BLM and people who are against BLM or whatever. 
What is your perception here? Okay. Racism has increased incrementally. It's always been here. I think you said it right the first time. Uh, not so much that there is so much more racism, but we are seeing it manifest more. It's always been here. But in the last uh, five years, we've, we've seen it come out from under the rocks, under the carpet, out the closet door kind of thing. It's always been here. But now it's beginning to manifest itself some more. And there are reasons for that, you know, that we can get into if you want. But, um, you know, in terms of, um, of BLM, in terms of other things, you know, like that, yes, a lot of that has, uh, have contributed to it. And it's the perception. You know, perception is one's reality. Uh, whether it's real or not, you know, one's perception is one's reality. And you cannot change somebody's reality. You know, they only know what they know. And if you want someone's reality to change, what you have to do is offer them a better perception. And if they resonate with your perception, then they will change their own reality because their perception becomes their reality. And that's what I've been able to do in terms of when I sit down with these people who, who hate me, you know, at opposite ends, uh, I offer them a better perception rather than attack their reality and tell them how wrong they are. Amazing. Amazing. Bill, let's turn back to you. Um, we're basically talking about Facebook and Twitter here. I think they're the dominant social networks in, let's say, North America, but we could also say Europe. We could say significant portions of the rest of the world as well. What are the core problems there, in your opinion? Yeah, I think that we're seeing, you know, some similar ideas that, that we've been discussing come to the surface with this recent uh, episode between Elon and Twitter. And, you know, he has been talking about how he thinks there needs to be less bias, more transparency. And where, where I really agree with him on is the open source algorithms, because you know, when we're scrolling through our feeds right now, the way it's structured on most big tech apps is that we don't know why we're seeing what we're seeing. We don't know why our posts may or may not be uh, surfaced to our followers. And so, you know, the transparency of like when a post comes across my feed of why am I seeing this? What, you know, what is the algorithm doing? We're not saying algorithms are bad. That's kind of like saying math is bad, <laughs> you know. Uh, but we do want to know, okay, is my post being demoted for some particular reason? Or, you know, is this post that I'm reading being fed to me for some particular reason, whether it's because they tracked my location or, you know, they're targeting me for, for some reason? I'll bring up one really interesting piece that came out in the Washington Post after we published the paper, but this is research that I'm very fascinated in. It's about the idea of what's called algo speak. So essentially what's starting to happen is because certain words are censored and you get kicked off if you use certain words on social media, um, groups all across the political spectrum, LGBTQ groups, political groups, all, you know, all different kinds of groups are encoding new language to get around yes. the algorithm. So if you can't say, for instance, the word sex, then, you know, they now have some kind of coded word, which would be like hex. And they'll just use the word hex 
to talk about that. And and this is sort of happening in extreme groups, in normal groups. You know, the the fascinating thing about the the post article was that and this was covered by Taylor Lorenz. I highly recommend you check it out. She was acting as if it was affecting many progressive groups and they were actually getting censored on TikTok and and Instagram. You know, cuz typically in the last 5 years free speech has largely been politicized, unfortunately. And um, and it, it's been seen to be more of like a conservative issue, but really it's not. It is a cross-spectrum phenomena that people on all sides of the aisle, you know, have a problem with. Not, n- not everybody, but, you know, there are realms of the left and right which care strongly about free speech. This is a, you know, fundamental freedom Mm -hmm. that traditionally has been not a political issue. So I find uh, the evolution of language in response to these restrictions is really fascinating to me. And it really just proves that you cannot ban words. And if you do, all that you're doing is causing those communities to change their strategy. So, so it's just another example of the whack-a-mole. So maybe they're, you know, they're not getting banned, but they're being banned from using certain words. And so that causes them to morph and just do the same thing in another way. Well, so you know, let, go ahead, Daryl. I, I would say, you know, uh, like, like Bill gave the example of making another word for sex, if you can't say the word sex. You know, there are a lot of dog whistles out there. Uh, mm-hmm. that cause people to do certain things. And we've seen that in the last four or five years, all right, being politicized. For example, the uh, the phrase, take our country back, all right, is one of those uh, key phrases that means something totally different than what you might expect. It rings very clear with some people what it means. Make America great again means something totally different than make America great. If you and I, or, or most people who run for president, would would say, I'm going to make America great, or I'm going to make America greater than it's ever been. Very few would ever say, I'm going to make America great again. That that rings something totally different. And a lot of people know know what he's talking about when he says that. Take take our country back was originally a Ku Klux Klan slogan from 1954, when Brown versus the Board of Education desegregated schools. You can find footage of Klan leaders standing with a burning cross behind them in front of a microphone or megaphone saying, we're going to take our country back. I'm not letting my little white boys and girls go to school with little niggers. We're going to take our country back. What did he mean? Back to segregation. Okay. And, and now, you know, that, that was your slogan. All right. Uh, very well known. Then 2009, a new political party was born and it was called the Tea Party. And that was the Tea Party slogan, take our country back, take back our country. And they had a, um, a rally on the Capitol steps. You know, I only live, you know, 30 minutes from the Capitol. I'm right across the D.C. line in Maryland. And I went down there and I interviewed some of those people. And I said, why are you using a Ku Klux Klan slogan? Oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we don't mean it like that. Well, well what do you mean? You, you know, it's a Klan slogan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was way back. You know, you know, we, we mean something different. I said, what do you mean? You're leaving it open-ended. You're not saying take our country back from what or take our country back to what, you know, you're leaving it open-ended. Well, what we mean, sir, is we're going to take our country back from the Democrats. 
We want to take our country back to Republican rule. Okay, that's fine. Say that. Close it off. That way there's no room for misinterpretation. Well, sir, that's what we mean. I said, okay, well, I have one problem with that. The one problem is Jimmy Carter was a Democrat. Bill Clinton was a Democrat. Where was the Tea Party then? Where was Take Our Country Back at that time? Uh, now there's a black man in the White House, and you all are screaming, we're going to take our country back. What are somebody like me supposed to think? Well, sir, that's what we mean. We don't like Obama's uh, tax reform. Well, you know, the, the original Tea Party from, you know, the Revolutionary War, the Boston Tea Party, was all about taxes. Okay, mm -hmm. That's why they, they dumped mm -hmm. the sea in the ocean, I mean, in, into the harbor. So Ob they didn't like Obama's, um, you know, uh, tax reform stuff. All right, fine. But why use a Ku Klux Klan slogan? Because it rallied a lot of people for, for another alternative reason. When Donald Trump came out in front of the White House and gave his little one and a half minute speech before everybody marched down to the, to the Capitol, you can, you can go find it. What did he say? He said, you will never take back our country with weakness. You must show strength. There was that phrase again, take back our country. You know, mm -hmm. and what do we see? We saw strength in, in, in the Capitol Rotunda. We saw people marching around with a Confederate battle flag, a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. You don't have to ask them what they want. You know what they want. They want to take our country back. You know, and oh. so that's the dog whistle where people have gotten around. You know, I, I've been doing this for 40 years. I have seen neo-Nazis and the Klan march down the street with a megaphone saying, six million Jews was not enough. Gas the Jews. Send the niggers back to Africa. Okay, I have heard that. I've seen it. I've even got footage of it. I've even got uh, boat tickets from the Ku Klux Klan that they printed up saying, here's, here's your free ticket back to Africa. You know, that kind of thing on a boat. So I, I can show you this stuff. Wow. You know, now, that, granted, that's freedom of speech. But, you know, you can't say things like that and get away with it. So, you know, especially online now. Back then, there was no online. And we, you know, we're talking 1980s and stuff, all right, and 1990s. But now online, you can't say that stuff without getting kicked off. Now, should, should some words be banned? Well, some words are banned, okay, and, and for legitimate reasons. For example, the Supreme Court ruled you cannot shout fire in a crowded mm -hmm. theater. And mm -hmm. there's a good reason for it, unless there is a fire, because you will create a panic and, and cause people to get trampled for no reason if there's no fire. So they ban use of that word. Then they ban, later on, they ban the use of the word a hijacked or gun in the airport. You know, you start playing around with those words, you will get arrested because, unless somebody has a gun or somebody's doing a hijack. You know, you just say it because of panic, you will go to jail. But because you're going to cause a riot. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when, when the Klan marches through a black neighborhood shouting, ship the niggers back to Africa, uh, that also causes a riot, <laughs> you know? So, you know, where, where do you draw the line? Or when the Nazis marched through, you know, we're, we're going to march through Skokie, Illinois, uh, back in the day, and talking about, you know, six million Jews is not enough. That can cause a riot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think wow. that what we find is that context matters. And, you know, that's what the Supreme Court ruling on, on fire in a theater and in different threats in, in the airport, you know, understanding the context of the use of the word is really essential. And I think that that's where the, the big social networks are, are getting it wrong. They're not paying attention to context nearly enough. It's much more of just kind of a big blanket 
ban and and what that does is that that causes people to kind of be confused and you know it it rips you know it it empowers the words too much because there are all different types of contexts i mean look at daryl right now i mean using the words in a contextual way which explain what was happening i mean in right now daryl could potentially be banned from facebook or twitter if he said that so clearly something is wrong when we're we're not allowing ourselves to understand the intent behind it right and can the algorithm detect the intent or just detect the word yeah that's a question i want to dig into and and bill i want to get your opinion on that because you're a tech guy you're you're ceo of, of a alternative social network and we tend to have this perception and i say the we greater we the world people and we think these big tech companies the facebook's the twitter's the reddit's they have ai it's so sophisticated machine learning it's incredible it's amazing what they can do it's almost scary facial recognition other stuff like that and then we see what they're doing in terms of content moderation and i have multiple friends who i know are not racist and violent or whatever else and sometimes they're just talking about dinner or something like that and they got a they got put in facebook jail I, I i don't know about you guys but i've seen that comment more in the past six months than mm -hmm. i ever saw it before the you know i got put in 30-day facebook jail and here's here's the screenshot why you know they come back and they tell you right going like hmm. and so you're wondering what happened there bill you said that the algorithm should be open source. And there was actually a, a, a report today or a story today that that is impossible because the amount, the date, the amount of data that goes into whatever gets seen is huge. The convolutions are complex, uh, all that stuff. Is it actually possible to quote unquote open source the algorithm, which Elon has talked about for Twitter, uh, but also for, you know, Facebook, for LinkedIn, for other networks mm. like that, and let people know this is why you're seeing what you're seeing. And also on their own things, this is how many people saw it or why it wasn't shown or other things like that. Mm -hmm. Is that even possible? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's possible. Whoever, I, I would love to see the source of, of who was saying that it's not. I think that maybe they're conflating the data with the code. You know, the code can certainly be completely open. Now, the data that is sort of fueling the machine learning, you know, I don't think that anyone is necessarily suggesting that all of the data be open because there's a lot of personal data in there. But yeah, let's follow up. I would I would love to see who okay. was who was okay. saying that that's not possible. And then, you know, otherwise, in terms of the context, like, Right now, it just sort of seems like they're being lazy and they're overwhelmed. And I think a lot of this is their own, you know, you sleep in the bed that you make. They created these terms of service, which are so restrictive. And one day to the next, you don't know, you know, what eggshell you have to watch out for. And so, you know, Contrasting to, to what free speech advocates are, are pushing for to kind of align content policies as more of a common carrier approach, more aligned with the First Amendment. Je Supreme Court uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, is advocating this. Many others, 
And it's totally reasonable. Other major communication companies are subject to common carrier provisions where they can't ban people based on, you know, their beliefs. You can still use the phone, you know, no matter what your beliefs are. And yeah, so I think that they have to sleep in the bed that they make. And, but that being said, you know, I think we all know from experience scrolling through YouTube or whatever, sometimes the recommendations are amazing and it's, it's incredibly valuable. And they, they're like, Oh, you know, look at that Jimi Hendrix video that I'm getting fed. I mean, that's, you know, that's exactly what I wanted to watch right now. And some, you know, so there's, there's really smart people working on this stuff over there. This isn't a, a jab at, at any of them, but I think that what the, what the algorithms are doing is enforcing content policy that is not well thought through. And, and our challenge to these big, these big networks is please show us the research that you have um, conducted, which is justifying your content policy. So where is the peer reviewed evidence that your deplatforming is actually resulting in a healthier internet and in de-radicalization. Well, they're not going to be able to find anything because their rate of de-radicalization is essentially non-existent because they just, you know, throw the people off the platform and don't engage at all. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> mm -hmm. how are they going to de-radicalize anybody? That is a, yeah, that is a good question. And uh, I want to turn to Daryl in a moment and just ask, you know, what the solution is going to be. But what's interesting about what you're just saying there, Bill, is that you get the scenario when stuff is being banned, uh, whether it's for what some would consider good reason, what others would consider to be bad reason. Well, you get the scenario that people say this will be banned soon. Watch it now. Or <laughs> the scenario, this was banned, so it must be true because they're in a certain subgroup that believes a certain thing, that believes te mm. big tech, uh, doesn't want people to know or doesn't want people exactly. to Exactly. It reinforces so, that yeah. conspiracy. It reinforces the conspiracy theory. So I want to turn to you, Daryl. Um, you've had hard conversations with people who hate you at first sight for no reason. We have this world of massive platforms where they have done what is good for them. They have done what is good for them by, oh, people are engaging with this content. They're coming back. They're liking. They're replying. They're having conversations. They're on our platform more. So we're going to promote that more to others. And that's led to scenarios where we've had very great divisions driven even deeper. What is the solution for social platforms to help bring us together or at least allow us to have conversations and maybe not prioritize the conflict so much? Well, you know, uh, you're talking about social media, but, you know, we also find that in mainstream, mainstream media, Fox yes, News, we do. CNN, MSNBC, a lot of people dedicate themselves to one of those channels, you know, and they're being fed whatever that one channel is giving them. And that becomes the truth to them. It becomes their reality, you know? Uh, so it's not just social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's also, you know, mainstream media. Mm -hmm. um, I believe the answer is providing more and better information to combat disinformation and misinformation. You know, that's, that's how, how, how we resolve that, because 
as Bill pointed out, you know, when you drive people away, they, they seek a place where they can be heard. That's one of those values. Everybody wants to be heard. They want to be able to express themselves. And so if they can't do it here, they will do it there. And there may be a nefarious place, a dark mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. uh, where it's amplified and it festers and it grows and then it explodes like Charlottesville, Virginia, like mm -hmm. the Capitol insurrection, things mm -hmm. like that. So we need to be able to allow these people onto our platform, give them a platform where they can air these views, you know, no matter how contrary they may be, as long as they're not advocating for harming people. You know, in this country, the Supreme Court also ruled that we have the right to hate. We don't have the right to hurt. And when you cross that line, that's where it becomes a legal issue. So give these people a platform, give them guidelines. You know, they're welcome to express their views, regardless of how contrary or abhorrent they may be. And the best way to combat that is to provide better views. But what people are afraid of is how many people will they radicalize by, mm -hmm. by, by airing and amplifying those views. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a few who will fall through the cracks and get on. But basically what you're saying is America is too stupid to, uh, to, to realize, you know, this is BS, you know, and it's like this. Mm -hmm. I, I, I remember, you know, the, uh, like on, on TV back in the, in the, uh, in the 70s and, and the 80s, you know, they did not show a lot of interracial stuff going on, mm -hmm. uh, even though it was going on out here in the real world. Sure. But, but the stations did not want to show it because it said, you know, if people are not ready for that. They'll go off. Well, who are you to tell me what I'm ready for and what I'm not ready for? You know, I had to grow up uh, with uh, Leave it to Beaver and, uh, and, and the Andy Griffith show. And these are great shows. These are great shows. But little Beaver Cleaver and his brother Wally did not have any friends that looked like me. Little Opie Taylor in Mayberry didn't have any friends that looked like me. I had to watch Lost in Space, you know, with the robot and Space Family Robinson and Dr. Smith. They went all over the universe trying to get back to Earth. They saw people with three arms. Not a single eyes, black person. Not anywhere. a single black person in the universe, man. You know, uh, until Star Trek came along. Star Trek came along and you had not, not only a black person on there, but she was a lieutenant. Yes, Lieutenant, lieutenant Uhuru. Uhuru. <laughs> the, first, the first interracial kiss, not, not in this country, but the first interracial kiss on TV was between Captain Kirk, William Shatner, and, uh, and Lieutenant Uhura, uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols, on, on Star Trek. And that was in 1969. It's been going on long before 1969. I used to watch American Bandstand. I remember Dick Clark, it was either the 25th anniversary or the 20th anniversary, Dick Clark put it on, all right? And this is in the 1970s. And um, he would bring back all the star, all the rock and roll stars from the 50s, uh, you know, because it's, it's 25 or 20 year reunion. So he would show a clip of them appearing on American Bandstand in black and white, you know, singing their big hit. And then halfway through the song, that person would walk out live from behind a curtain in color and finish out the song. And Dick Clark would walk across the other side of the stage and meet them at the end of the song. If it was Brenda Lee or Connie Francis, he'd kiss them on the lips and you'd see it. If it was Gladys Knight or Martha Reeves, or Ronnie Spector, you know, one of the black singers, he still walked and kissed them on the lips. But right when he got there, the camera would pan to the audience. Mm. So you would not see him kiss them on the lips. Yeah. Wow. You know, wow. 
And so it's things like that, you know, that we are behind the times. Technology-wise, we are the greatest nation on the face of this earth. But ideological, ideology-wise, we're behind. You know, mm -hmm. there, there are third world countries out there that have female presidents, female prime ministers. You know, all we do is argue over, can a woman be president? Can a black man be president? Can a Mormon be president? Back in the 1960s, it was, can a Catholic be president? <laughs> we are so caught up in all this idea, ideological BS that we forget we need somebody who can run the country, regardless <laughs> of gender, color, religion, etc. Love it. But we, yeah. you know, we, we, we are living in space age times, but thinking with stone age minds. Mm. Wow. And money quote right there. Bill, I want to I want to ask you a question about what Daryl just said. Daryl said, uh, as I asked, you know, when social media networks amplify things, uh, you know, and maybe things that are factually incorrect, according to some people. Uh, and he said, hey, provide information that counters the misinformation. How do you do that? Do you do you provide sort of like an all sides dot thing? So that's allsides.com. You see mm -hmm. different the different uh, angles on the same news stories. Yes. Do you provide, you know, other people think this when somebody shares something that says that? How do you do that? A lot of it has to do with, you know, control over your own experience. I mean, I I I think that you should not be seeing things that you're not interested in seeing. And obviously, you know, young people. Isn't that you know, part of the problem, Bill? Then we stay in our own reality it is, world. It is, but I think that ultimately, you know, your control over your technology is, you know, foundational. That being said, we just rolled out a whole build your algorithm feature so that you can actually, on a little slider, adjust your echo chamber. So you can say, you know, I want to see more opposing ideas to what, to what I'm used to. And... You know, I hope that doesn't yeah. go all the way down to zero because mm -hmm. in the real world, let's talk real world, you know, pre-technology, you're going to run across the person, the, the crazy speaker on the corner. You're going to run across somebody else who talks to you in the subway or something like that. In our virtual worlds that we've created, it seems like we can have these pure uh, halls of ideology that are only aligned with what we believe because of the choices that we made and the algorithm just reinforces, reinforces, reinforces that. Yeah. And I hope you can't dial that down to zero. No, I mean, it's pretty much impossible on any social network to, you know, completely stop contrary ideas from getting into your feed. We also have the boost feature, which anybody can use to, the, the boost is really a kind of a algorithm uh, or an echo chamber buster as well. Basically, we have this system, you, you can earn tokens and then boost your content to everybody's feed. And no, I mean, we're not trying to enable echo chambers. But I think that just the concept of presenting someone with an option to see ideas that they disagree with, to see more people on the left, to see more people on the right, these are options that are educating someone while they're looking at the options. So, you know, on, on Facebook or, or Twitter or YouTube, there's, there's no setting <laughs> that you can go to to adjust your algorithm. So just the yeah. idea of putting it into someone's brain, oh, I might want to see ideas that are different from my own. Like that is foreign to 
the vast majority of people's social media experience right now. Right now, people go in and they're trying to be reinforcing their ideas. They're trying to, you know, subscribe to everyone in their tribe. Just the prompt of sending someone a message that says, would you like to increase your tolerance for opposing ideas? That in itself is sort of a, a unique design that, that we're bringing to the table. And it does educate people. You know, you can't force these things down people's throats because they'll leave. So you, yeah. you need to really be, be conscious of, of easing people into it. And um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, Daryl's strategy is very much not about pushing, you know, too hard because then you can get the backfire effect where, you know, they think that this is some sort of a, of a conversion therapy type <laughs> <laughs> type situation. And you really do have to be careful of that. So, yeah. you know, but, but in terms of uh, better information, you know, right now on Twitter, you'll get a fact checking message, which was fact checked by like, you know, five think tanks. What if, and we haven't built this yet, but it's something that we're, that we're planning what if on if if a post was deemed to be controversial, you could kind of click a button and see a visualization of the debate on both sides, not like like you were saying with all sides that you know they're doing great work. There's another site called Ground News which does very similar thing. They they provide they they visualize the debate. They don't tell you that. what is true and false, and those those types of things I, I think are very healthy. I want to give. Uh, we got to wrap this. I want to give the last word to Daryl, and and I'll I'll kind of I'll ask a question, but go where you want to go with this, and and say what you want to say. And we've talked a little bit about opposing viewpoints. We've talked the words conservative and progressive have been used here, left and right have been used here. Personally, and right or wrong, I don't know. I hate labels. I hate labels. That's progressive. That's conservative. Oh. That's regressive. That's left. That's right. Because I find that a lot of people start identifying with a label and they meet a new idea and they say, does that label, does that label fit in this chunk of things that I agree with? Is that leftist or is that rightist? And then I'm against it or, or, or for it, depending on where it fits or where it lands. And they don't think through an idea based on the idea. And the evidence for it and the thoughts about it and what people are saying about it and other things like that. And so we close our minds and we don't think. Exactly. Darryl and I agree with you 100%. I don't like labels either because, you know, they try in this country, we try to pigeonhole somebody into a certain box. Otherwise, we are very confused. We can't navigate it unless we know exactly what category they fit into. And the problem is, you know, people are multidimensional. They're multifaceted. You know, I might, I might like this from the conservative side. I might like that from, from the liberal side. I might like that from the you know libertarian side or whatever. And and all of that is what makes me, you know? But if I take one thing conservative, then I'm a conservative. If I take <laughs> one thing liberal, I'm a liberal. If I take one thing, you know, I'm a Marxist, you know, whatever. You know, and, and then you're and an enemy. <laughs> listen, I, I, as as you know, you mentioned I'm a musician. I'm a professional musician. That's all I make a living. You know what? But my degree is in jazz. I have a degree in jazz. But I'm out here playing rock and roll. I play country. I play boogie-woogie, rockabilly, swing, R&B. So, you know, when I play a couple of blues songs, all of a sudden I'm a blues artist. You know, because I have a degree in jazz, I'm a jazz artist. You know what? I am a musician. If you're paying, I'm playing. You just tell me what you want to hear. 
<laughs> love it, love it, love it. I probably put you in a box as I got a pre-email that said blues musician. So apologies for the box. Other, but... No, 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 no problem. You know, other places call me a, a rock and roll musician. You know, other places call me a uh, a jazz musician or. A, I play swing dances where people do the Lindy Hop and Jitterbug. I'm a swing musician. <laughs> I played for Chuck Berry. I played piano for him for 32 years. So obviously I can play rock and roll, you know, so I'm definitely a rock and roll musician, but I, I play what I have to play, you know, when it's called for. If it's if it's a variety gig, that's what I do. If I play a blues festival, yes, I'm going to play the blues, you know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I have a quote, which is on my Twitter as the pinned tweet, and I can't recall exactly what it is. I, I invented it, but reality is multidimensional. People are multidimensional and everything has so many different sides, not just one, not just two, not just three, not just two, a couple labels. And if we could accept that about each other. Uh, that'd be a wonderful thing. I want to thank you, Daryl. I want to thank you, Bill, for a conversation on some topics that are that are hard, that are challenging, that are difficult. They're not just hard in terms of technology. They're hard in terms of our emotions, in terms of who we are, in terms of what we think is right or wrong, in terms of what we think should happen with the world and the direction of our countries and other things like that. And you've done a magnificent job. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us.